We've got these really beautiful cave woman brains that were designed to keep us alive for many, many years in the wild, but they are very mismatched with the task of remaining calm and cool during an economic or stock market collapse. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and mamas, today on the show, we're talking to my good friend, Amanda Holden, founder of Invested Development and the Dumpster Dog blog. Now, mamas, if you haven't heard from Amanda before today, you're just going to love her. She uses this amazing, unique mix of comedy, relatability, and an immense well of knowledge to show the thousands of women she's taught that building wealth and investing is within their capacity. In this episode, she's going to share her own money story, but also what women need to know to start their investing journey and how to know when you're ready to jump into the markets. And of course, I'll have lots of laughs. As always, stick around till the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Amanda, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Amanda to download your free Money Mama's Guide to Investing and access the complete show notes. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Amanda, welcome to the Smart Money Mama show. Hi, Chelsea. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. We've had you speak at both of the Mamas Talk Money Summits, which was incredible. Amanda's dancing, guys, right now. But I'm so excited to have you on and tell some of your story. So tell us, how did Dumpster Dog Blog come to be? Oh, man. Okay, well, so (laughs) some of you know me as Dumpster Doggy on Instagram. I write a blog called The Dumpster Dog Blog, which is kind of just fun, no BS finance education for, for women. And it really kind of started as just a dumb little blog that was very much, you know, it's held together with chewed up bubble gum and duct tape, basically. <laughs> like Chelsea probably looks at this blog Stuff and she's like- Stuff you found in the dumpster. <laughs> Stuff I found in the dumpster, quite literally. Yeah, it's just kind of like my scrappy little finance blog. And, and Dumpster Dog was actually a nickname that I had picked up while I was still working in investment management. Chelsea, you and I are kind of similar in that we have a background in investment management. And I specifically was working for- a private money manager. And so we would manage money not only for institutions, but also for individuals, so high net worth individuals. And that's the the side of the business that I worked on. I worked directly with our high net worth clients. I was working as an investment counselor. So, So that was the name of my role. And so my job was essentially to keep our clients apprised of any shifts in portfolio strategy, answer questions about the stock market, get to know our clients' personal financial situations. So basically, I was doing just like a lot of handholding with old rich guys all day. That was that was my job when I was 25. It was a great job in that I learned a lot, and I am now able to deliver this information to the demographics that I actually care about, moms, young women, immigrant communities, whoever it may be that has so often left out of these conversations. But anyways, so I was working at the investment management firm and one year it was, it's so cliche, but it was just right around January 1st resolutions time where I was like, you know what? I got to get out of (laughs) here. Like this, this place, it's just, it's not really matching up with like who I am as a person and helping rich men get richer just is not going to be it for me. I just decided, you know what, like I'm going to save every single dollar 
that comes across my desk that makes its way into my savings account because I want to get out of here and I don't really know what to do next. And so I went through a period of, it was ended up being eight months. So I had wanted to quit after six months, but I ended up taking about eight months until I got to a place where I had saved enough money that I could essentially just blow out of there and without a plan of what to do next. And so I left to go and, and travel. But but anyways, during this really scrappy period, I was working on a team with all men. I was the only woman on my team at the, at the time. I was being like, just so scrappy about it. And I would be like, hey, I see you have another half of your sandwich over there. What you, you share it with your girl Mandy or, or, or what? You know, I'm trying to save money. They started calling me. My coworkers actually started calling me the dumpster dog. That was the genesis of my nickname and then also the blog. Maybe we can link to like the, the origin story of how I became the dumpster dog. There's a whole post on it. It went viral at one point. The British tabloids picked it up. <laughs> it was, it's, it's a super silly story. But yeah, so that's the origin of Dumpster Doggy. I have to say, so we have this postcard that went out for the Mama's Talk Money Summit this year that had all the, the speaker's pictures on it. I think you got one. And in it, you're wearing this leopard printed outfit. So my two-year-old likes to play I Spy with this card. He's learned all the Mama's Talk Money speaker's name. It's so cute. <laughs> but he'll point to you and go, it's Miss Demanda in the Leopards, <laughs> and, oh which is really gosh. cute. But every t- when you're telling this story, I'm just imagining you in this leopard printed outfit trying to do private wealth management <laughs> work. And I could see how that might not have fit exactly for you. Yeah, you know... It was like it was only going to happen one of two ways. I was going to bring all of Wall Street down or I was going to have to quit and find something else. <laughs> it just wasn't for me. It was a little too buttoned up. A little too buttoned up. It's a lot buttoned up. We had quite the internal debate at my last job about whether or not we could have casual Fridays and wear jeans. And the founder was very upset that we were even discussing this. We were allowed to do it. It ended up that we could do it in the summer, but it was much too casual for the others. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. We, so we were not allowed to have casual Fridays. There was no jeans allowed. And there was even a really big debate over whether women could wear like peep toed heels or peep toed shoes. And I was like, you know what? I actually do not care either way. This is such a waste (laughs) of my time. I'm going to show up every, you know, I'm a college graduate. I am 22 years old. You are not actually paying me enough to really care about how I look. And so I'm going to show up every single day in an ill-fitting polyester suit, the same one, (laughs) until you start paying me a little bit more. (laughs) So when you were ready to make that transition after eight months, what did you tell your coworkers and your family that you were headed off to do? And what did they think? Well, so my coworkers who were my closest friends already knew about the plan and they're the ones that nicknamed me Dumpster Dog. But like my boss, of course, didn't know. And in fact, when I when I told my boss, who is a really lovely guy at the point in which I was quitting, I had some not so great bosses, but I ended with with a really great boss. And when I when I told him, I was like, hey, dude, I'm putting my two weeks, I'm out of here. He was like, wait a minute, is this why I saw you? Is this why the guy's call you dumpster doggy? I was like, yeah, this is why they call me dumpster doggy. He's like, is this why I saw you pull a bagel out of the trash? I was like, yep. (laughs) Yep, Matt, I've been trying to save some cash. And so now I'm leaving and hopefully I'll never have to work again. My family and my friends kind of knew that that was my plan, that the plan was to leave and go and travel for a while. My parents were not happy about it. My dad 
particularly was not happy about it, but he was just mostly upset about me traveling alone. And that's just like, you know, not something that folks in his generation really ever had the the opportunity to do. And so it's just something that they're not comfortable with. It was some tough conversations, but people were mostly supportive. It was during my time traveling because while I was traveling, I was like, I was having one of these kind of vision quests, like, what am I going to do next? Like, I don't really want to talk about investing all day. Like, this is this is actually not my thing. You know, while I was traveling, I kind of came back around to the idea, just thinking, I have also been teaching all of my friends, all of my girlfriends, this, this information for the last six years. Maybe my work here in this space isn't done and, and, and maybe there's more for me to do. And so that's when I decided, okay, maybe it's like, you know, maybe if I'm talking about this stuff on my own terms and teaching the people that I want to teach, then it will feel different. And it really has. But that was kind of the turning point for me where I decided to come back do some writing, start my own business, focusing on young women. And so, so yeah, that's kind of the impetus behind like starting my business, which my business is actually called Invested Development. I'm dumpster doggy on all of the platforms. Invested Development is the business. I get a lot of people that think that I should change fully over to Invested Development. If you know dumpster doggy, then you know dumpster doggy. And so it's like, it feels like part of the identity at this point. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Both are great names. Oh, thank you. I do think invested development might explain a little bit better about what you're doing. Right. Like after my 10 minute explanation of like, why dumpster doggy? And it's like, I know it's like so weird. If I was to do it all over, I might not (laughs) do that. But I really wasn't thinking that far ahead when I started my, uh, again, my total dumpster trash blog. (laughs) Well, and to be fair, like, so our original name of the site was Mama Fish Saves that my mom grip named. And so many people were like, I don't know what this means. This feels weird. <laughs> and so once it became more stable business, we rebranded to Smart Money Mamas, which made slightly more sense to people. <laughs> but initially you're always, you're just looking for your supporters, right? And you're naming for them and, and going from there. I got to ask you this time off to travel. So how long did you go travel for this vision quest of traveling? So I was lucky enough to travel for a year. Had you saved up? Did you work at all during that year? I did not work at all during that year. So I left with about $30,000 earmarked to be able to take the year off. I was able to stretch that amount of money out for the year. So I was traveling primarily in Latin America, so in Central and South America. I was able to stretch that money out and it was able to cover me for about the first six months when I got back to the United States. That's awesome. And so since your business, your actual business now is about investing, what did your investments look like as you went into taking that year off? Did you already have a base of retirement savings? How did you think about taking a year off from saving? It's definitely not ideal, especially because we working in investment management are absolutely just marinating in the idea that you need to be investing every single year for your future when you lose a year when you're young, it's one of your most valuable years that you can be saving and investing because that just gives that money even more time to compound over the years. And so it wasn't ideal to take the year off. And to be honest, I took a couple of years off because I also did not continue to save and invest for retirement right when I got back because I was starting a career over from zero. I didn't save anything into a 401k or any other sort of retirement type of of saving and investing account, not an ideal situation. For me, it just felt like 
I really didn't have any other option because I needed to start over and I was really killing myself at this job. I felt like I was kind of like drinking myself to death at this at this job and I I, I needed to start over and and do something new. And so, you know, you kind of have to weigh these trade-offs whenever you're making a decision with your personal finances. And so, it was a, a situation where I took took off a couple of years saving and investing for retirement. That said, I did have a base, a nice base going into into my traveling experience. I at least felt a little bit comfortable that there was something there that I had at least started on that journey. And I had some investments working for me even while I was traveling. Which is fantastic. Now, I want to step back for a second. What years were you working in investment management? So I started in end of 2007. Yeah, 2008, beginning of 2008. A real exciting year in investment management, (laughs) which we can come back to that if we would like. And then I quit in 2014. You were really formed by fire here at the beginning of your career, right? And so I'm curious, I want to talk about what type of questions you got from your clients at this point. I think that there's, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think that there's a misconception that people who have more money are asking more intelligent questions and are more aware of, of what's going on than some other people. A lot of people think they're not ready to invest or whatever. So tell me, what are the types of questions that you were most often getting from people when they were calling you potentially freaking out? It was every single question is a derivation of, is the stock market broken? (laughs) (laughs) And this is such an interesting question. And and I love the point that you're making, because what I do want people to understand, what I do want young women to understand is that people who have a lot of money are not necessarily more knowledgeable about investing. They're just more knowledgeable about how to make money or they had opportunities or, you know, whatever it may be, they made the money. But a lot of my clients, for example, were doctors, engineers, those types of guys that had just had really lucrative careers for for 40 years. And they just happened to amass enough wealth to want or need to hire somebody to help them with the investment management. And if you are hiring somebody to be your investment manager, the implied there is that you want somebody to help you and you want a little bit of handholding and you want somebody to make the big decisions for you. And so it was really just answering a lot of questions about, well, first of all, like why is the stock market doing what it's doing? But then for us, a really big question was, why didn't you see this coming and why didn't you turn the portfolio defensive? Because the the firm that I, and this is kind of getting into some nitty gritty, but the firm that I worked with actually did go defensive during the previous bad market, the bear market, which was the dot-com bubble, and successfully avoided the majority of the big bad bear market for our clients. Of course, the firm I worked at used this as a major sales technique to get people on board being like, we caught the next one. Who who do you think, you know, we, we caught the last one. Who do you think will catch the next one? And guess what they didn't because catching two in a row is borderline impossible to do. And, and 2008 was such such an unpredictable series of events that it would have been so hard for anybody to catch. But so we were having to answer for a lot of what our kind of bad sales techniques have been, had been up until that point. And so really just answering questions and assuaging some 
concerns and fears and trying to get people to avoid going to cash. I mean, that was that was pretty much the job, not only in 2008 when the market turned, but probably until about 2012 or 2013. I was working specifically as an investment counselor starting in the beginning of 2010. Before that, I was in an associate role. I thought when I was coming in at 2010 that I had missed the worst of it, but <laughs> people were still absolutely freaked out because the market during that time did not actually start to come around until it was March of 2009. But even then, people were not thinking that this is the recovery. People were thinking those four famous words that it's different this time. And that this is the time that, that stocks are going to zero, that we are going to see an unraveling of the entire system. For those of you that are new to investing, it is really important to understand that anytime we have a big market crash like this, you are going to hear people say these same ideas. It is different this time. This is the time stocks are going to zero. I guarantee you during every market crash, somebody will say stocks are going to zero. And not just the crazy guy on the street yelling on the corner, some media company is going to come out and do a big headline story about how the market's going to zero. Right. And 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 maybe even somebody that you really trust financially will will say something like that. Like I have a a good girlfriend in Portland and she had some money in some investments, some stock-based investments during the 2008-2009 market crash. At about 2009 or 2010, her dad encouraged her to sell out of all of these investments, which, by the way, have recovered and not only recovered, have skyrocketed since then. Let's come back and, and talk about that. But with this, this quick story, she trusted her dad because her, her dad is a real, is like a real real estate kingpin. Like he is a real estate mastermind. And so, of course, she trusts her dad's judgment about this, like, really kind of complicated, important financial matter. But he gave her the exact wrong advice because there's just something that is so it just really grabs a hold of you when you when you go through a market crash and you see this money that you worked so hard to build up so hard to create this nest egg for yourself. And you see it over the course of what, five, six months, lose a quarter of its value or up to half of, I mean, more than half of its value. I mean, 2008, the market, the US stock market was down 55%. If you were invested fully in the stock market, then your portfolio, your investments, your nest egg lost more than half of its value. You know, nothing is lost until you sell until you realize that loss, until you make that loss real, which is what people do in these scenarios. Because we've got these really beautiful cave woman brains that were designed to keep us alive for many, many years in the wild, but they are very mismatched with the task of remaining calm and cool during an economic or stock market collapse. We just kind of have to train ourselves. Like, let's let's think about this a little bit differently. Is this the time we really want to sell? Like, sell when it's at its worst? Sell sell when it's at its lowest? Or might this be a good opportunity to to buy? So yeah, the, what about you? What will you were you working in investment management in two thousand eight? I started my first internship in two thousand eight at Bear Stearns oh. <laughs> right after they got bought out by J.P. Morgan. So it was a mess. The floor below me where I was an intern was empty. For those of you who weren't really paying attention to the investment world at that point, people were just walking out of big investment firms like and just not coming back, just leaving. And so the whole floor below me was dark and empty. 
there was chaos, especially as JP Morgan bought out Bear Stearns of like, because I was on the private wealth side for that internship. And so we were trying to cross over what were clients both JP and Bear Stearns had because some big high net worth people will actually invest with multiple managers because managers are fallible. And so you want to diversify. And so we were figuring all that out. It was kind of crazy, but I was very, very new and really just, just interning. And then I came in really in 2011 was when I was full time. And so things were a little bit calmer. The difference for me is I covered metals and mining. So I came into metals and mining and metals and mining didn't see its real crash until 2012. I saw that decline. That's a very volatile sector. But I think your story brought up two good points to me, one of which is one of the best uses of financial advisors, good ones, is keeping you calm through the cycles. And like their outperformance is not actually based on how well they invest, but the fact that they keep you from selling at the worst possible moment. It's like an extra check on your brain. So when I was doing investing on the hedge fund side, I didn't interact with individuals because that's not what we were doing. But we had an investor relations team who would say the same thing you're saying, which is, we're getting the variety of questions of like, is the world ending? Like they read some article in the Wall Street Journal or New York Times and they call us and they're like, is the world ending? We all have those same questions and those same fears. And then the second thing being that even in an individual sector, someone's right once, right? There's a guy who called oil going to $100 in the early 2000s, who was the oil guy at Goldman for the next decade until he got it wrong, right? And that's like, we have to be careful who we're listening to and understand that we're all just trying in some sense to predict the future and none of us can actually do that on a consistent basis. No, and that's I mean and that's what makes stock picking like buying individual stocks. I never want to discourage people because I think that it can be a really great gateway. It's a really great way for people to get interested in like go out, you know, take it take 100 bucks, take 1000 bucks and go buy some stock that you've been interested in forever. Like I think that it's a a, a really great way to get interested in investing. That said, building an entire portfolio of individual stocks is extremely difficult to do because what you are trying to do is pick the best stocks that will perform the best in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I always like, I mean, we we were both completely steeped in this type of culture, but like, I can't tell you how many like water cooler talks I had with investing bros who were like, oh, have you checked out this stock? It's totally underpriced right now. Have you checked out this stock? It's overvalued right now. And I just wanted to be like, none of y'all know shit because no, nobody can predict the future. So how could you realistically know whether it is overvalued or undervalued at the current price? It's a very difficult thing to know and to be able to predict. And it's why I'm a personally a big fan of just doing a like super simple index fund strategy where you just buy a couple of index funds, like buy your US stock market fund, buy your foreign stock market fund, maybe throw a bond index fund in there. And then you just let it ride. You don't have to really think about it too much. And 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 the great thing is that that strategy has actually historically been much more successful than trying to pick individual stocks. Much more successful. I always find it interesting the juxtaposition, and this might just be my experience, but the institutional side, so hedge fund world, bulge bracket bank world, I did not have that culture as much where water cooler talk about stock picking. I hear about it all the time in the individual personal wealth management, like any of my friends that have worked in that space say that it would happen. And it's funny to me that the people who managed the most money were like, and eh, we're just going to do index funds and maybe we'll take five or 10% of our portfolio and pick some stocks, but like, we're just going to let it ride. Even though their whole job was to pick stocks and bonds, their own portfolios were primarily index funds for a lot of reasons, some of them being regulation, regulatory reasons, but also because 
we only had so much mental energy and we all knew that. And so much of it went into picking our own portfolios at work. We weren't going to also have a second full-time job trying to pick our own stocks at home. And so index funds were always the base strategy. And they're, they're my base strategy too. I think we have like $1,500 in a brokerage account that I just trade fun stuff that I used to cover that I want to watch. <laughs> and that's it. Well, and that's actually a really interesting point. I want to be clear that almost everybody that I worked with had the bulk of their portfolios invested in index funds as well. So let's be uh, let's be clear about that. So everybody listening hears this. All of the people, not all of the people, I but I guarantee you, so many of the people that you would or could potentially hire to manage a portfolio of stocks for you, I bet you they're invested in index funds. The majority in index funds at the very least. Or if somebody is trying to sell you some high-priced insurance product, or if somebody is trying to sell you actively managed mutual funds, which just come with a higher cost, that's called an expense ratio. I bet you if you ask them, what do you invest in in your home, they would be invested in, in index funds. Even Charles Schwab himself, like Charles Schwab is an actual guy, even Charles Schwab himself, who sells trillions of dollars worth of managed mutual funds via his bank has come out and said, oh yeah, I invest in index funds. I mean, even Warren Buffett, the most legendary stock investor ever, when LeBron James went to him, when he first got his his big signing bonus, was like, how should I invest this money? And could you imagine being able to go to Warren Buffett to ask how you should invest your portfolio? Well, and, then, and then can you imagine Warren Buffett coming back to you and saying, oh, just put it in an S&P 500 index fund <laughs> and then be like, oh, well, I thought it was going to be way less cool than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> right? Like what? I thought, okay, I was like, yes, it does not have to be complicated. I want to talk about the core tenants we need to know when we do invest. But before that, let's take a quick pause to hear from our amazing partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. Whether you're building an emergency fund, paying off debt, or saving for that special vacation, every little bit counts, which is why I love to use Ibotta, a free cashback app that lets you easily earn actual cash rewards, not points or mysterious codes, on almost all of the things you buy. Groceries, household items, school and office supplies, furniture, restaurants, clothes, diapers, and so much more. Don't you want to save on purchases you're already making and put that extra cash towards your goals? I know you do. So download the Ibotta app or add the Chrome extension to your browser. And don't forget to use the code MAMA2020, that's M-A-M-A 2020, when you create your free account, because Ibotta is offering Smart Money Mamas listeners an exclusive $20 cash welcome bonus to supercharge your savings. Don't leave money on the table, Mama. Start using Ibotta today. What are some core tenets that we need to follow when we start investing? A lot of people that listen to this show are relatively new to the world of investing. Maybe they have a 401k, but they're not actively paying attention to it. So what are the basic things we need to know? What I always like to tell people is that, well, first f first and foremost, the thing that I want people to understand is the stock market will be volatile. It will be volatile, and if you are not emotionally prepared for that volatility, then you're not ready to invest. You don't have to know everything about investing to invest, but what you do have to accept is that your stock market investments, whether it is an investment in a single stock or it is an investment in a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund that holds a bunch of stocks, you're still invested in stocks. You're still invested in the stock market. 
that's one thing that I think is really missing from personal financial education and specifically investing education is you hear a lot of people talking about, well, like, yeah, buy, buy your index funds. You'll be good to go. Set it and forget it. But because I lived through 2008, worked directly with extremely intelligent and rich people who absolutely lost their marbles because of a stock market crash, I know how important it is to accept deep into your heart the reality that the stock market is going to get kooky. Like it's going to get wild out there. We saw, we got a little taste of that earlier in this year, but I mean, that was was a taste. That was just a taste. That was just a (laughs) nibble. Like wait till you get the whole bite uh, up in your mouth because it's going to be, it's, it's a lot. And so just, that's what I always tell people first and foremost is you just have to accept the volatility is a part of the game. If you want to play the game, you have to play the whole game. You don't get to sit out innings, and that includes the years that are not going to be good. In general, the stock market is up, let's say like 70% of the time. It's down about 30% of the time. And so the good news is it's up a lot more than it is down, and that's why this idea of kind of like set it and forget it long-term investing makes sense, right? Like just give yourself enough time that you get to reap all of the seven out of 10 good years, but just know that you cannot know when those three out of 10 not so good years are going to be. And so that's just going to be part of the experience. And so that's the first thing I always say. The second thing I would say is that the most important decision that you're going to be making when you're talking about investing is not actually like the decision of like, should you own Tesla stock or should you own Microsoft stock? The most important decision is going to be the decision, are you going to even be invested in the stock market? It's this we call asset allocation. So how are you allocating your different assets? There's really only so many different asset classes. There's stocks, there's bonds, there's cash, there's real estate. I mean, there's some other, you know, there's crypto, there's other stuff. But we just bucket those all in alternatives. Alternatives. (laughs) Alternatives. Right? Like, Don't worry about those. Right. Like, if you don't want to invite them to the party, they don't have to come to the party. <laughs> like it's not necessary. And so you could keep it super simple within your investment portfolio and just break it down between stocks and bonds. There's really only two investment types. Like I remember when I learned that there's actually only two investment types, I was like, oh, dang, I can handle two. I thought there was a million. <laughs> Two is something I can write down in my notebook and follow along. I can handle two. I just thought that the investment universe was limitless. I actually believed that when I started. Now, of course, there's a million ways to package these investments and to sell these investments. And that's what makes it feel limitless. But like even with like a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund, those are nothing more than a big old basket of some other investment type. It's generally a basket of stocks or a basket of bonds. And so you're just buying a whole bunch of stocks at once or a whole bunch of bonds at once or some combination thereof. If you are investing in a mutual fund, a mutual fund is not an asset class in and of itself. You are either investing in stocks or bonds or something else. It's just happening via this mutual fund. And so like maybe some of you have seen my my suitcase example that I I have given. I did at the conference last year. I can't remember if it's part of the the conference for this year. I have actually, I have another example. So like, for example, buying a single stock would be like buying a single stem, like a single rose, whereas buying a mutual fund would be like buying a bouquet of stocks or a bouquet of roses or whatever, however you want to think about it. Really, if what you're looking to do is just really start digging in and understanding how to invest a really great starting place for you is to just understand the mechanics, mechanics of stocks and bonds. 
And I think that that's a good point about the two asset classes. Even the craziest names that come up for things really break down. It's either equity or debt. It's either stocks or bonds. And stocks, it might not be ownership in the company, but it, in a publicly traded way, but it's ownership of something, which is equity, and then or it's debt. <laughs> they do pack, they do try to make it as complicated as possible with as many terms as possible, but it's really only those two. So Amanda, one of the questions that we get most often is how do I know when I'm ready to invest? Here's what I would say. So number one, do you have some emergency savings? Right now, especially right now, but always, we want to make sure that your immediate needs are taken care of. Now, not everybody agrees on exactly how much emergency savings you need or how much you need to get started investing. I do encourage you to do a little bit of like mental digging and digging to to understand what that number is for you. I personally kind of keep a lot of emergency savings. I keep about a year's worth of like super stripped down expenses. Like I would not be living lavishly, but I would be able to afford my rent and my health insurance payment and some hot dogs and hot dogs and some vodka. (laughs) That's that's pretty much the essentials. (laughs) Only the essentials. (laughs) And so it would, I mean, actually that kind of sounds like a good time. That would be a fun year. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It'd be a fun weekend. I don't know about a fun year. a lot of hot dogs, (laughs) a lot of soul searching in that year. That's because like, I feel more comfortable with that knowing that I live in an expensive city. I live in New York city, want to make sure I know where my rent payment is coming from. And so I keep a a real stripped down years worth of expenses, but like maybe even just starting with like three months or six months is a really, uh, six months is a really great start. That being said, I don't know that you need six months to like at least start getting that 401k match that you might have at your workplace retirement plan, which is absolutely investing. But I would say make sure that your immediate needs are taken care of first, whatever that means for you and for your family. And then second, got to get rid of that credit card debt. I'm a big fan of getting rid of credit card debt before we start investing. Again, the one exception may be getting your 401k match. But in general, I'm a big fan of getting any emotionally stressful debt off your balance sheet before we move to investing. And especially because it just makes mathematical sense. This is probably something that you've covered before on this podcast, but people always want to know, like, should I pay off my debt or should I invest? Where we start is we start by comparing interest rates. So what is the interest rate you could expect to earn on what you are investing and compare that to the interest rate that you are paying on your debt? With credit cards specifically, it's kind of a no-brainer because you could be paying anywhere between 12% and 29.99% in an interest rate on that credit card debt. I think that the average right now is like 17% or 18%, somewhere along those lines. Whereas if you compare that, so you're bleeding out, let's say about 17% a year on any balances that you're holding on a credit card, you compare that to investing And what could you like, like a best case scenario, what could you hope to make investing over the next, who knows, like 10 years? I mean, it's anybody's guess, but like 6%, 7%, 8%, nobody really knows. And and that's what also makes this, you know, kind of a a tough trade-off question that also requires a little bit of personal introspection. And and you take a look at, at what feels good for you because we also can't necessarily predict the future of returns, but the credit cards are kind of a no brainer. I would say get those off the balance sheet. And once you've done that, once you've got some cushion money, once you've got, you know, no credit cards or emotionally stressful debt, 
the third thing, and, and I already mentioned this, that I always like to tell people, you know you're ready when you are comfortable with the idea of volatility. If it, if it still puts a pit in your stomach about watching the value go down by half, then you're not you're not ready yet. <laughs> yeah, you're, and, you're, and, and that's okay too. It's like part of investing is also learning how to invest and learning to be comfortable with it. Yes, it's not a dollar investment, but it is an investment in investing if you're learning about it. Maybe then the first step for you is actually getting in there and deconstructing some of these topics so you do feel a little bit more comfortable with the idea of, of volatility. And, and just to give you a little bit of hope on that matter, pretty much everybody, not everybody, but I would say anybody that is, it feels very comfortable with the idea of investing or who has worked in investment management and understands the why behind volatility is not scared of it. Amanda, how often do you check your investments? Not very often. <laughs> so I have everything. Well, that's not true because, well, let me answer with the question I think that you're asking, which is like, how often should people be checking their investments? I would say, don't check them all that often. Rip Van Winkle that shit. Just like, kind of like keep shoveling money in and then let it ride and you know, check it in 60 years when you need it. I mean, that's how you're going to be the most pleased by what the outcome is, the more time that you give it. That being said, of course, you got to poke your head in and do a little bit of maintenance from time to time just to make sure that everything is is situated in the way that you want it to be situated. We call that rebalancing, where you kind mm -hmm. of like rejigger around your different investments to make sure you're allocated to stocks and bonds and U.S. stocks and foreign stocks the way that you want them to be. And I, I only do that, honestly, every couple of years. Every, like, once a year is, is fine to do. I do it every couple of years. That being said, every now and then, I will need to go in and proactively buy some additional investments just because I am a self-employed person with a highly irregular income. While most of my stuff is automated, the, not only is the contribution to my different investment accounts automated, but it's also set up to automatically invest. So it's kind of a two-step process. First, the money automatically moves into the account, and then that money automatically buys investments. And so it's totally hands-off for me on a month-by-month -month basis. But every now and then, if I get like a big payment from a big job, I will move like a block of money into my investments. And so I'll have to log in and, and see what's going on and, and, and buy, buy more investments on a one-off basis. Yeah, we're about the same. So I log in and just look because I'll, I'll recalculate our net worth like twice a year, but we only rebalance every year or two. Usually a year, usually a year is not enough movement mm -hmm. to even make it ne necessary to rebalance, but we at least check it. And then, yeah, I think like you do not, you should not be looking at this every week. <laughs> it's only going to stress you out. No. And I think a good rule of thumb is stay really on top of your checking account, learn your spending. That's something that's important to understand the daily flow of, but do not do that with your investment accounts. Because I mean, here, here's the thing that I think is really important to understand with investing is that once we invest in, in particular in the stock market, but really any investments, is we are now on the stock market schedule. We are not on our own schedule. And so we are a bit beholden to whatever the stock market does, which at first can kind of feel like a little bit alarming, like, oh my God, I don't like relinquishing control to this thing that is such a wild child. 
That being said, I encourage you to think of it as freeing. Like there's nothing you can do here except for sit back and let this thing ride and give it as much time as possible. And so it actually does not require your daily care and affection or worry or concern. Use that energy on something else because you cannot control the stock market. You can't control it with your mind. You can't control it with your decisions. It's it's just going to do its own thing. And so like, I actually think that investing can be one of it's kind of like, it's kind of lovely in this way. And like the world of, of money management, there are very few things that can be completely hands-off, but your investments can be nearly nearly hands-off. And that should actually feel freeing, to, especially to my, my busy moms that are listening in. Absolutely. You do not have to have a huge time commitment to start investing. And I do want to mention, Amanda, I don't know about you, but I've looked at some of the research. The stock market over the long term is remarkably good at matching earnings growth of public companies. And so while it's volatile in the near term, don't panic that it's like going to be this emotional wild child over the next 30 years. It will ultimately regress to the mean to where it should match underlying company behavior most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's why everybody says you got to think long term. You got to think long term. And in order to be a good stock market investor, I just really, you really have to believe two things. First, you have to believe that these companies that you are investing in when you invest in the stock market are going to grow wealthier over time, which like for better or worse, I think that they will. And then the second thing that you have to believe is that the stock market will ultimately reflect that value, which has done a very good job of doing that in the past. I expect that it will in the future. But it's not going to be without some major periods where investors specifically are like either way too jazzed or way too sad. And maybe that's actually something that's it's interesting to bring up. I think that this is something that is maybe a little bit misunderstood about what is actually causing volatility. And by volatility, we're just essentially meaning like prices go up, prices go down. One minute like the stock market and stock prices are Paris Hilton spraying champagne atop a mega yacht, right? Woo! <laughs> and the next minute, stock prices are completely hung over, like eating chow mein beneath the covers. Try, you know, like they, they go through these periods where it's like just kind of like humans, where like super excited at some points, like maybe even really positive about what's going to happen in the future, at other points feeling very dour. And the reason that the stock market goes through these, they're really essentially mood swings, is because investors drive stock prices. Our mood swings cause the mood swings in the market. And that's because you got to think about like what's driving it. Just even think of like an individual stock. Think of like Nike stock, for example. What is causing the price of Nike stock to go up or to go down? Well, it could be easy to think that it's like, okay, well, maybe Nike sold more shoes this year and had more profit. And so therefore stocks are up, which is so close. But it's missing a small little piece in there, a small little nugget. And it would be, it would, more accurate description would be like this. Nike sold more shoes last year and had more profit. And so therefore, more investors bought Nike stock. And that increase in demand in Nike stock is what pushed Nike stock higher. Investors, whether it's institutional investors or individual investors, buying in and out of individual stocks or buying in and out of the market in general via index funds or mutual funds or whatever it may be, is what actually causes prices to go up and down. If there's ever a period, like a spat of like really dramatic volatility, like in 2008, you have to remember like, yes, there were some some things that happened in 2008 
to give investors some real cause for concern. But at the end of the day, it's still investors bailing or selling out of their stocks that actually causes the stock market crash. Well, I always like to say like the call is coming from inside the house. We did it. We did it. That's like just human nature. And actually studying the history of bubbles and crashes is very fascinating to see like what just really riles the public up. And, you know, about once every 10 years, people have a little freak out about something. And, you know, it's generally completely justified. Something gets really scary. And it's almost always something that you don't see coming. That's kind of another really common element behind things that cause stock market crashes. Is it something that people just did not foresee? And that's what causes the real panic, right? Like that's like, now we're kind of all like living in like COVID-19. It's not causing some like immediate reaction or immediate panic any longer. Just do be prepared that, you know, the next time something happens that causes a real hiccup in the stock market, it will probably be for something that we didn't see coming or that the news wasn't talking about. But anyways, yes, that was a very long explanation. But like, it's, I think it's important to understand that like, earnings at companies are the engine that are going to drive stock prices over time. But we as the investing public are the ones that are actually causing the short-term moves as we vote on what we think that the right price of a stock should be. And that's what's causing the day-to-day volatility. But when you map it out over a long term, something kind of amazing actually happens. And that's that investors are actually quite accurate at reflecting what the real value is that is created at a company. And that's a good point too with the Nike investment that sometimes in the short term, it's not actually even that year's earnings. It's whatever the investor's expectation is of future earnings, right? So the stock of Nike could go up because they published some news report that they're going to build a new factory and everyone thinks that means they're going to buy new shoes. And so they go buy more Nike stock in anticipation of higher earnings. And nothing's actually changed at Nike yet, except they made an announcement. And so in the short term, doesn't necessarily match. Long term, it, it is actually kind of incredible how accurate it is. Well, that's like that's like a whole other part of investing that maybe gets into the weeds a little bit too much. So you are welcome to cut this out. But this idea of the wisdom of crowds is really fascinating to me or viewing the stock market as an emergent system, which is basically that like we as individuals are all making a little votes on what we think the right price of a stock should be by our buying or selling. Our buying or selling is our little vote. Each one of our votes may or may not be educated. It may or may not be smart. You can almost think of it as like ants in an ant colony where each individual ant is kind of stupid, to be totally honest. (laughs) But all of these ants together that make up an ant colony, it's greater than the sum of its parts. And it's, it's actually an incredibly intelligent system. And that's what the stock market is as well. It's an emergent system. There's this thing called wisdom of crowds, where have you ever read the book Wisdom of Crowds, Chelsea? I haven't, no. Okay, so it's it's super fascinating. Basically, if you play like the guess how many candy corns or jelly beans or whatever are in this jar game, you have enough people voting and you need critical mass. You need a lot of people like guessing. Like I think that there's 450 jelly beans in this jar. If you have enough people guessing how many jelly beans are in the jar, the average of all of those answers is almost always exactly correct, which... It's kind of this fascinating thing that happens when you get enough people that are giving their own kind of maybe even blind vote on what something should be and how all taken together, it can be extremely accurate. 
And so the same thing happens in the stock market. We're all placing these individual votes. And what we end up with is what we in the biz call an efficient system. A market is efficient because it is taking all of the information that all of us know individually, and we all get to vote on it constantly. And so it's actually kind of one of the most fascinating marketplaces in the world because we get real-time price updates on what the value of each one of these individual stocks should be. And we don't have that anywhere else in the world. Like, can you imagine like, imagine like walking into like one of those like stores that are like in every gentrified neighborhood. So like Bark and Willow or like one of those stars, they've got like kind of like the alpaca throws. They've got the ceramic mugs with the boobs, like an air, like a little arrow necklace. Like, can you imagine if you walked into a store like that and based on what people were buying or not buying, the prices would fluctuate? That doesn't happen anywhere else but the stock market. But the stock market is a marketplace like any other market. We just happen to get real-time updates about what the supply and demand or the buying and the selling is that is affecting the prices in that market. This actually brings up an interesting point. It's a common misconception we hear. I don't know if you hear it, but people thinking when they're buying stocks, they're giving money to the company instead of another investor that they're buying the stock from, right? That we're actually trading on a secondary exchange. What are some common questions or misconceptions that you hear that we should clear up? I would say, well, right now, the question that I am getting the most is, and this is maybe not about stocks specifically, because in my, in my course, like I don't do a lot of work on picking individual stocks because it is so difficult to do successfully that I think that for most people, they don't want to take that risk. That's actually something that I maybe hear some misconceptions about is the need to buy stocks or not buy stocks. Buying you don't, To be a good investor, you don't need to buy individual stocks. And I think that there's a big misconception out there that people need to buy individual stocks in order to be a good or a successful investor. And that's, that's definitely not the case. And in fact, buying individual stocks, in my opinion, the reason that you would do that is because you want to take some more direct risk in your portfolio to try to achieve more returns than you could get by simply just investing in index funds. If you're chill with just returning the average, the stock market average over time, just do index funds. Now, if you're gunning for more returns than just like the boring old average that's actually been pretty generous over time, then maybe you look to integrate some additional stocks in your portfolio in order to try to, to generate more returns. But like, again, risk and reward, two sides of the same coin. The flip side of that is you could also do worse than the index average. And historically, most people have. And not just most people, most professionals, right? Not just like mom and pop down the street. Most professionals who you could potentially pay for this service and have them do worse than the index average. So that's it's actually more likely that you would hire an investment manager or buy an actively managed mutual fund and pay that person for the service of picking the best stocks. You can't see me, but I'm putting best stocks in quotation marks. But, you know, they're picking up like what they think the bestest and the, the prettiest stocks are going to be and, and hold them in that fund or hold them in your portfolio. And you are paying them for that service. And it is more likely than not that they are going to do worse than the index average. I think it's actually one of the biggest, one of the biggest and most misunderstood scams in the investment industry. As we wrap up, Amanda, I realized that we jumped into this whole conversation and we never actually addressed 
Why is it important that we're investing? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, there's, there's so many reasons. There's so many angles you can take with this question, Chelsea. Well, so first of all, since I'm talking to moms, let's, let's start here. Women are going to live longer. Women are going to live longer than men. So we've got more years in retirement that we need to be considering and investing for. A lot of the investing work that I do with people, we're, what we're really talking about is formulating a plan for your financial freedom, formulating a plan for your retirement. The word retirement is just like kind of a word that younger generations have not latched onto. And I understand why. I mean, we've had such a crummy go of it over the last couple of decades that if you're a mom, especially if you're a young mom, and if you have dealt with now two economic recessions in your life, then you might be thinking like retirement, like we'll, we'll see if that happens. <laughs> yeah. The apocalypse is my retirement plan. <laughs> I hear that one quite a bit and I'm like, oh man, that's funny, but okay, we should, we know we shouldn't, let's not indulge that fear. <laughs> it's a common one. <laughs> it is. And it's like, okay, well, so what happens if the apocalypse doesn't come and you have literally no resources? Or what if it does kind of come, but it's like not really that bad and you're willing to live with it and you have no resources whatsoever? Really what we're talking about when we're talking about investing, when we're talking about saving and investing is we're talking about your freedom. We're talking about your financial freedom. At the end of the day, that's it. We are talking about you and we are specifically talking about future you. And I do believe that we have an, a moral obligation to our future self to provide for her as we provide for ourselves as well, which I know can be really difficult to do, especially if you're trying to take care of a family and you were like, I already got so many people to take care of. I can't also add in future me. That's I'm barely taking care of now me. It's completely understandable. But, but like the reality of, of retirement is, is retirement is going to be the single biggest expense in your lifetime, the single biggest expense in your lifetime, because you just think of what it is. It's living for 20 years with no income. It's living for 30 years with no income, right? You even think of how expensive one year is to live with no income. Now stretch that over the course of, of 20 or, or 30 years or, or more, if that's your personal financial goal. Really what we need to be doing is baking, saving, and investing for the future into our every year financial plan. Now, Chelsea, you totally called me out when you call me out for traveling and not saving for the future <laughs> earlier in the call. And so like, yeah, if you have to take a year off to do a little soul searching, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come gun for you. Like I'm no hypocrite, but for, <laughs> but for the most part, what we want to be doing is considering it every single year that we possibly can. Another reason that we need to be doing this is because most of us will not have any sort of like company pension plan that will supplement our retirement savings. Because like back, and, and I always like to tell people this as well. If this concept feels a little bit new to you, like wait, 401k what, 403b what? I'm supposed to be doing this all on my own? Like how come nobody told me this in high school? A lot of the reason for this is because this is all pretty new. Back in like our parents' day or our grandparents' day, well, not all of our parents, not all of our grandparents, but some of our parents, some of our grandparents had pension plans. A pension plan was when your company would save and invest money on your behalf for retirement. So the saving, the investing, and the doling out the money, they did all of it for you. Whereas nowadays, so basically like this happened in mass, I would say like in the 90s and the 2000s, companies were like, you know what? 
managing one of these is a statistical nightmare. And so I'm going <laughs> to, we're going to not do these pension plans anymore. And there's a lot of reasons that pensions started going bust. For example, people started living so much longer than these pension plans had statistically planned for, which like, is fair. Like pe- like the, the life expectancy went from like 50 to 80 real fast. And these companies were like, oh, dang, I thought you were going to live to be 54. This is not the math <laughs> is not checking out. But anyway, so companies kind of started pushing to this, this 401k model, which is basically the model of like, you know what, all of the retirement saving and investing, it's all on you now. The onus is all on you. That was way too hard for us. We quit. It's all on you now. But this is a pretty recent development. If you're ever like, why didn't my teachers tell me? Why didn't my parents tell me? Well, they didn't tell you because maybe they had had no exposure to it themselves. The idea here is that like, really, there's not a lot that we can rely on to help us supplement our retirements beyond our own savings and, and investments. Like, yes, we should have Social Security, but if you only rely on Social Security in old age you may be guaranteeing yourself a situation where you're going to be living in poverty. And, and in fact, elder women live in poverty two to three times more than elder men. A lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of our elder women right now did not have the same opportunities to earn income as, as we do have now. But we're also contending with quite a bit. We get paid quite a bit less than our male counterparts, which obviously makes it hard to save and invest, right? Like if I could get paid 20% more, that would be the 401k money. That would be, that would be the fight would be a lot of things. And so women certainly do have challenges to this day. And I, I do see the elder poverty issue following our generations into retirement. And really the only thing that we can do to stem some of this is to really take it upon ourselves to save and invest for the future as as much as as we can fit into our lives currently. I think it's also bears noting that when you're not earning an income like past generations or even moms now, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're not paying into Social Security. So your Social Security payment when you retire is going to be a lot less, which also increases that likelihood of poverty. So things we absolutely have to think about. Amanda, before we let you go, we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> so the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we ask the magical hat to reveal something about you. Are you ready? Okay. What is one of your guilty pleasures? Oh man, I'm like such an indulgent person. This is, I could go, <laughs> I could go, <laughs> I could go all day. I mean, like, I would have to say, like, I'm an eater and a drinker. I love posting up at a bar and just, like, you know, having probably a few too many drinks. And so I would say that's my my number one guilty pleasure. In fact, like, I am I just moved to a new neighborhood, and I'm peering into all the bars, doing a little window shopping for my next stool. I was like, okay, when these all open up, which, which spot's going to be mine? How's COVID been for you? Yeah, you know, it's actually been very productive. <laughs> had to give up that stool for a little while. <laughs> it's been pretty good for me, actually. <laughs> Tell us about your course, Invested Development. Invested Development is a 15-part video course. So 15 super fun inv- videos. I call it Investing 101, but I always think that Investing 101 does such a d- disservice because like, you're going to walk away feeling super confident in your investing plan. All of the topics that we talked about today, like if some of them just like went right over your head, 
I completely understand. Sometimes it just takes marinating in this information more than once. And I go through and explain all of the investing terminologies you could ever need to know. We build you out your own portfolio. And it's, again, 15 video courses. It's 11 hours of instruction. And there's also office hours with me. So if you sign up once a month, there are office hours with me. You can come bring your questions about applying the video material to your own situation. I'm there to answer any questions for you. And so it's called Invested Development, and I would love to have anybody join me. Mamas, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Amanda's course is excellent, and she does like to go above and beyond and give you all of the information. So if you have questions, make sure you go check out her course. It's fantastic. Amanda, where can people follow you on social and find your website? At dumpster.doggy on Instagram is probably where the majority of the free education goes down. I'm on Twitter as well. I just signed up for TikTok. Oh, man. I'm so deeply old, but like, we'll, 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 we'll give it a shot. So at Dumpster Dog Doggy on TikTok as well. And then, of course, the Dumpster Dog blog. I don't do as much writing on anymore, but there's tons of good stuff if you want to go back and, and read all, all sorts of blog posts on investing. Awesome. Amanda, thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness, mamas. I had such a great time recording this episode with Amanda, and we got to cover so many important points about investing. I'm grateful to her for hanging out with us and sharing her story. I also want you to know that if you're looking to learn about investing, Amanda's Invested Development course is my number one recommendation. I know we talked about it there at the end of the episode, but it is so in-depth while being fun and comedic and will really get you into a place where you feel confident investing. You can check it out at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash invested hyphen development. So smartmoneymamas.com forward slash invested hyphen development. It's so, so good. As always, I've wrapped up my three favorite takeaways from this chat with Amanda for you to remember as you build wealth with investing. First, people who have more money are not necessarily more knowledgeable about investing. I love that Amanda called this out and that we got to discuss that we are all learning about investing and that having more money doesn't necessarily make you more ready or more knowledgeable. Very wealthy clients of financial advisors are all asking the same questions you are. What do I do when the market swings up and down? Should I change things when I feel scared or excited? Do my investments match my goals? Even if you're feeling some imposter syndrome about investing or thinking that you're just too nervous or too green to invest, know that simply learning the basics, listening to podcast episodes like this one, and keeping things simple and consistent is all you need to do to build wealth long-term. Second, I love this point, investors are the reason the market is volatile. As Amanda said, the call is coming from inside the house. The number one question or maybe the better word is concern, of new investors is why the market moves up and down the way it was. New investors think that that volatility is a sign that investing is more like gambling. But on a minute-to-minute, day-to-day basis, what moves the market is us. It's supply and demand of investors who want in or out of different investments that is moving the price, which means... Our natural human emotions can often drive bigger moves in the market than what the underlying business fundamentals would really indicate. In those moments, remember to go back to your goals and your long-term investing plan. Remind yourself that over the long term, the market is actually surprisingly accurate at matching the actual growth of companies. And to shut off any media, social or otherwise, and voices that make you feel like you have to react to those short-term swings, because you absolutely do not. 
Finally, make sure you're ready to invest before diving in. Investing is great and can absolutely build wealth, but if you jump in before you're ready, you might make bad decisions, like trying to invest for the short term or not keeping the rest of your financial foundation in order, and that certainly doesn't help you build wealth. So be prepared before you start. As Amanda said, you're ready to invest when you have emergency savings, no emotionally stressful debt, and are comfortable with the understanding that the market will be, not might, but will be volatile. Once you're ready to focus on the long term and ride the waves of the market cycles, get investing and take care of future you. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Amanda again for coming on the show and sharing her story and investing advice. You can find links to her site, Dumpster Dog Blog, and her course, Invested Development, in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Amanda. You can also head there to download your free Money Mamas Guide to Investing to help you get started. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time.